Last week I was speaking with Pastor Dan, and as we looked around at our shivering brothers and sisters, Dan said to encourage me, next week, Fred, it's going to be 70. I said, Dan, my forecast wasn't that warm. Well, it's good to read the right forecast, and if we continue to meet here at Cedar Bren Farm, Pathway Christians may soon be known as God's frozen people. But we'll be moving indoors soon. I look forward to doing that with you. Please travel with me to the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 21. I'll be beginning there with the first verse. After my wife, Linda, learned, before I did, that Pastor Dan was going to ask me to preach on this date, she took me aside and said, your last sermons have been very heavy. Make this one more uplifting. There are biblical examples of a man listening to his wife, like Adam, but there are good examples too. And in the experience of life, I've learned that Linda's advice is almost invariably good, and I ignore it at my peril. So with that in mind, I composed this sermon and gave it the title, A Biblical Perspective on Pestilence, which sounds like I'm off on the wrong foot already. But I ask you today to bear with me in what I say and judge my words when they are ended. First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, commander of the army, and to the princes of the people, Go, number Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan, which is a literal way of saying from the southernmost extent, Beersheba, to the northernmost limit, the tribe of Dan, but it's also a figurative way of saying, number Israel from the bottom to the top, and bring me word that I may know their number. Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are, but my Lord the King, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, and Joab departed and went throughout all Israel. Now the scripture does not tell us here exactly why taking this census would bring guilt on Israel. It tells us that Satan stirred things up, taking on the role of accuser as he does in Job, but David carried it out, and therefore he is responsible. And whenever an author of scripture tells us something was bad but doesn't tell us why, he is proving again the age-old theological truth that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The author is assuming, I don't need to explain this because everybody will understand. They possess a contemporary cultural and theological knowledge which we lack. Let me see if I can provide some of that. Culturally, Israel was surrounded by many kingdoms in which those kings would commonly conduct a count like this, and this was not simply a count of all people, 
But as the next verse in Chronicles makes clear, it was a count of all able-bodied fighting men who could draw the sword. This kind of account was invariably a prelude to instituting a draft and raising taxes, both oppressive acts of ruling. That was common in the surrounding culture. That was not to be done in Israel. Hundreds of years before the monarchy, through the Spirit of God, Moses foresaw that there would be a time when Israel would have a king. And he gave very clear instructions in Deuteronomy 17 that the king was not to count things up for himself. He was not to accumulate wives, horses, chariots, gold, silver. He was not to lift up his heart above his countrymen and think himself better. He was to make his own copy of the law and read it night and day and realize that he was king through faith in God and the recognition that God was the true king of Israel. Theologically, the offense here that David is about to commit goes even deeper. From its very beginning, God had promised that he would make Israel a great nation. And part of their greatness would be that he would cause them to grow in number. So we read all the way back to Genesis 15. Then he, God, took him, Abraham, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able. So shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Abraham didn't try to count the stars. God has repeated this promise throughout Israel's history to make them a great nation that would grow in number. And God expected this promise to be believed by faith and to recognize in accordance that the people of Israel were God's people to count, not David's people to count. David, in effect, might have been thinking something like, sure, I believe God's promise, but count them up anyway. Then I can name the number of people I rule over, and that is sure to impress everybody, especially my fellow kings. David gets good advice not to do this, but he does it anyway. He is guilty here of what the scripture would call the sin of the high hand. God intends good for Israel and for David. But in this instance, he cannot deliver that good. And he cannot treat David as just another Israelite because David is his representative to the people, prophet, priest, and king. To his credit, passes over. To his credit, David recognizes almost immediately after he has committed this sin that he was wrong to do it. He says to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. 
God does ultimately take away the iniquity, but he must deliver the punishment. He sends a message to David through the prophet Gad, and David is given three choices. Three months, excuse me, three years of famine, three months of being driven from power and pursued by his enemies at the edge of the sword, or three days of pestilence. David, again to his credit, regroups quickly to a position of faith. Please, he says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord. In other words, send the pestilence, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. The pestilence comes. 70,000 men die. And after these deaths, the scripture tells us the Lord sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as the angel was about to destroy, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it is enough, relax your hand. And the pestilence ended. The scripture tells us here that this pestilence comes by God's will. But David appeals to God's mercy, knowing that he who sent the pestilence has the power to save him from it. And God is merciful. You can see a second example of this in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, where I'll begin with the fourth verse. The context here is that the people of Israel are traveling from Egypt to the promised land. They have miraculously witnessed God's divine deliverance of them from the Egyptian army. They have seen God physically manifest himself to them to lead them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And every morning they see God's provision for them in the miraculous creation of something that has never existed before, manna. But as the author notes, the people grow impatient with the journey. And in his words, they speak against God and Moses. And then they question God's motives. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread and no water, and our soul loathes this miserable food. To this point, God had not only been Israel's provider, but also Israel's protector. As Moses will recall later to the nation in the words of Deuteronomy chapter 8, He, God, led you through the great and terrible wilderness, fiery serpents, a Hebrew way of saying poisonous snakes, scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which you did not know. God has been protecting these people from multiple dangers, including an abundance of venomous snakes, which do well in a desert environment. He's been doing it so well that the people don't even realize the danger that they're in. But when people reject God's provision, 
God has no choice but to withdraw his protection. The scripture continues, verse 6, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, very perceptive, and because we have spoken against the Lord and you, intercede with the Lord. They might have added, please intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses, in a tremendous act of forgiveness and forbearance, interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, that is a pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked upon the bronze serpent, he lived. From a superficial standpoint, this doesn't look like intelligent advice. Dr. Fauci would never tell any of us, if you contract COVID, look at a statue of a bronze snake and you'll feel better. But that's a very superficial way of looking at what's going on, which I'm sure Dr. Fauci would not do. Because the serpent is not the source of the cure. Faith is the source of the cure. Not faith in a magic serpent, but reasoned belief that God is the one and only source who can save them from this pestilence. He, God, is in fact putting to the Israelites a question, will you do this? Look at the serpent. For no other reason than the fact that I am the one telling you to do it and that you believe I and I alone have the power to cure you. The Bible relates this to us as a real event, but if you keep on reading the scripture, you discover that it also tells us that this is a sign, a foretelling of a much greater deliverance to come. When Nicodemus the Pharisee came to Jesus by night in secret to learn more about eternal life, a great conversation takes place and we always embrace the highlight of that dialogue with the words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But all of us would gain much more insight into the power of these words if we paid more attention to their context and especially to the statement Jesus makes immediately before he states the words of John 3.16. Just as Moses, Jesus tells Nicodemus, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus is telling us here that 
The serpent on a pole is an act of love by God toward the people. The serpent saved the people from the temporary pestilence of poisonous snakes. The Son of Man, Jesus, lifted up on a cross will save people from a far greater and more deadly and permanent pestilence, the pestilence of sin, which leads to eternal damnation. As we endure this season of pestilence, the world sends us three messages. The first message is, a vaccine is coming. The second message is, we will get through this. The third message is, it's not that bad. The first message is a statement of our faith in human science and technology. If we pool all of our research expertise, all of our medical know-how, all our facilities, all our institutions, all of our budgets, we will create a cure for COVID. That statement is not unlike the statement that the people of Babel made to themselves a long time ago. Let us make for ourselves a name. And then, as God perceived, they will think, nothing will be impossible for us. The second statement is a statement of faith and arrogance in the capacities of the human spirit. We are tough. We will endure. We will overcome and we will defeat COVID and emerge victorious, just like we do in all those alien invasion movies. The third statement is a statement of denial. As of this morning, seven and three quarter million Americans have been infected with COVID, about one in every 42 U.S. citizens. Of that number, 214,000 are dead. That total is greater than the total number of battle deaths in the U.S. Civil War Union and Confederate forces combined. It took that war five years to reach that number. COVID has surpassed it in less than eight months. Someday there will be a vaccine, and one way or another we will get through this. But when we look at what the Bible tells us about pestilence, it doesn't tell us, wait for the vaccine and stay tough. It tells us to seek God with a heart of repentance. But when we look at our nation today, we don't see people displaying signs of a repentant heart. We see people who can't wait to get back to the bar, to the beach, to the big game, to the big party. We see people who believe the messages of the world and believing them are deceived by them and put their lives in danger because of them. If the church, in love, is to rescue these people, 
if we are, as Paul would put it, bring them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, then the church must deliver a radically different and thoroughly biblical message. And that message begins with a call to repentance. In Papua New Guinea, Repentance Day is an annual national holiday observed every August 26th with prayer ceremonies held all over the country in which people pray for and confess their sins and pray for ways in which they might repent of them. Papua New Guinea is one of the most diverse nations on earth. 851 languages, even more identifiable and distinct cultures. Yet for all their marvelous diversity, the people of Papua New Guinea are 96% Christians. These are people who are the descendants of, in some cases the sons and the daughters of, people who practiced cannibalism and headhunting. These are the savage tribes that our old hymns sing about. These are the savages that Western missionaries covered continents and traveled oceans to save. Individually, many of those missionaries were killed and some of them were eaten. But collectively, they succeeded. The people of Papua believed and learned something about repentance in the course of their believing. Today, we might be blessed in America if the Papuans sent missionaries to us. But if they came, it is we who might appear as savages to them. In all of this, we must remember that repentance is preceded by self-examination so that we know what to repent of. Why do you look, said Jesus, at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? In theater, this is what we call a prop. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? And behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, said Jesus. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. A pestilence like COVID causes more than eye irritation. It brings loss. It brings pain. It brings death. People suffer financially. People lose their jobs. And with that, a part of themselves and their self-esteem. People get depressed. And in their depression, they may do things that they wouldn't have done if they were feeling all right. There's an old saying, that Christians are the only army that shoot their wounded. I don't hear the saying so much anymore, but I don't see that it's any less true. 
As Christians, we often, when we encounter a person in crisis, not merely or especially financial crisis, but especially moral crisis, an adulterous affair, a divorce, substance abuse, addiction, bad language on social media, it is often our tendency to withdraw from that person so that we do not infect ourselves with this kind of sin and the evil that it can bring. But consider a biblical example of an alternative approach. From Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, a leper came to Jesus and bowing down said to him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus answered and reached out and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy left him. Leprosy was the chronic pestilence of the biblical world. That was true in Jesus' day, in Moses' day, and everybody else's day in between. Leprosy was a disease that was contagious and without cure. And according to the law of Moses, it was a sin to touch a leper. And if you touched the leper, you became unclean. Even if by the mercy and miracle of God, a leper was cured, he still had to undergo a lengthy period of quarantine and observation by the authorities, just as COVID-infected people do today. And if he passed through that period of seven days, on the eighth day, he was permitted to make a cleansing offering and then be pronounced clean. Jesus turns all that on its head. He touches the leper. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the leper becomes clean. Then Jesus says, go show the priest, make the offering. What this example shows us is that God does not need to isolate himself or to withdraw himself from us even in our worst possible state because God cannot be infected by the pestilences that infect us. Rather, in that miserable state, God touches us if we appeal in faith to be touched. And being touched, we are cleansed. It's likely that no one had touched that leper for a very long time. But when Jesus touches him, it gives him hope. And that hope immediately becomes a basis for faith, that Jesus who touches him has the power to heal him, and he was healed. When things are going well for us, our hearts are strong. We feel in control. But the Bible warns us that when those circumstances are in place, our hearts can also be, in the words of Scripture, lifted up. 
they can become proud. And a proud heart is a closed heart. When a heart is bleeding, when it is broken, when it is torn in two, that heart is open. And an open heart leads to an open ear and an outstretched hand. This present pestilence presents to Christians opportunity to speak, to touch, and to heal. Being a substitute preacher provides you opportunity for service, but no conference of status. But even without such status, integrity requires that I tell you where I think these teachings lead. And I will offer these leadings to you as proposals and ask that those who have the Spirit of Christ, as the Scripture instructs, judge them according to that spirit. Proposal one, for you and I as individuals, a biblical response to a time of pestilence is to enter into spirit-directed self-examination, lament for the pain that we and others are experiencing and the losses that we and they have suffered, to identify with the sins of our own nature and those of our culture and to understand what we have contributed to or compromised with these, leading to spirit-directed repentance that is guided by a humbled heart. Proposal two is for the church, that in times of suffering and pestilence, it has always been, as it remains today, right and appropriate for the church to call people two days and services and occasions and observances of prayer. And in these servants, these services, to confess with lament and sorrow what has been suffered. And it's no good trying to put up a front by saying, thanks to Jesus, I feel just fine. It's not, first of all, how you feel, it's how you are. And second, don't look to Jesus for an example of dealing with sorrow by denying it. The scripture described Jesus as a man acquainted with sorrows, not just those of other people, but his own. He did not deal with sorrow by denying it. He dealt with sorrow by embracing it and following it in obedience to the will of his heavenly Father all the way to the destination to which it led, even to death on a cross. But because he embraced that sorrow and knew its outcome, he could say in advance, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. As a church, let us set aside time to lift up our sorrows, and in doing so draw ourselves and others who are sorrowing to Jesus. Proposal three 
for both individuals and the church. The, the pestilence of COVID-19 has created conditions that are not only conducive to the spread of the disease, but the spread of the gospel. The density of sorrowing and hurting people has gone up, and they are closer to us now than they have been before. Church, this is your moment. And I speak now particularly to the elders and leaders of Pathway. Now is your moment to go and be with those who have been most harmed and hurt by present circumstance. And if you have done it before, do it again in person. Your presence with that person might be so important that it could save their life or their faith. But even if neither of these two things is in immediate danger, your presence with them will change your relationship to them. Your influence in their life will grow. And the power of the gospel through your words in their ear will affect them as it has never affected them before. Yes, there will be a vaccine someday, and we will get through this one way or the other, but we can take from this experience of pestilence something better than an improved immune system and stronger emotional resilience. We can learn the power for ourselves and for others of a repentant heart. Last week, Dan made clear that one of his central points in his sermon was this, put in writing with places to fill in the blanks. Change happens by a moving of the spirit empowered by prayer through the proclamation of repentance for forgiveness by the cross. When David's son Solomon publicly demonstrated, excuse me, publicly dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, God showed up and his presence so overwhelmed the event that as the scriptures put it, the priest were no longer able to minister. But after this public appearance, God very soon after comes to Solomon privately and gives him these words. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Would you pray now with me? Lord, we rejoice in hope that your mercies are great, for we are in need of great mercy. Many among us are sick and many have died in this present pestilence. We suffer in more than this. 
Our forests are burned with fires we cannot quench, our coastlands battered again and again by storms we cannot resist. Our cities filled with physical violence and hateful words between us. And conspiracies of abduction and murder are plotted against those in authority over us. And the words of your servant Hosea are spoken to us. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beast of the field and the birds of the sky. And the fish of the sea are also taken away. You said through your son Jesus that you would know us by our fruits. These are the fruits of the world we have changed and of the nation and culture we have helped to create. The tree is ripe for judgment, but we, your people, are not ready for your return to be part of the kingdom you will establish. We pray for your mercy upon us and upon our nation. We ask that you send us your Holy Spirit, that we may know ourselves as you know us and see ourselves as you see us. Give to us a spirit of wisdom to know how to repent. Show us how to confess in truth the sorrows we have borne and the sorrows we have caused others to bear. Lead us in love to those who are suffered more than we, that we in love may comfort them as you have comforted us. We praise you as our provider and protector, and we seek no other. We have hope with joy in the promise of your everlasting mercy toward us and your power to heal us through your resurrected, risen Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.